Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Um, we're in the middle of this Advent series, and it's called Christmas Questions. So each week we're going to tackle a different question. Last week, Pastor Tim started this thing off with addressing the question, who is this Jesus? Well, I have a short and sweet sermon for you this morning, because the question is, is Jesus really human? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) They're kidding. Don't worry. Go back. (laughs) If only theology was that easy. You probably already know this fact that many people question the divinity of Jesus, right? That's one of the main focuses of Pastor Tim's sermon last week, that Jesus was not just simply a a prophet or a good moral teacher. He was and is and always will be God. And most of the world does not yet believe this truth. And that shouldn't come as much of a surprise to any of you, considering you're living in this world. But did you know that some people throughout history have actually doubted whether or not Jesus was really human. Even some of the earliest churches had doubts creep in regarding the human nature of Christ. There was a group of people called the Gnostics who broke from the teachings of the apostles, and these people subscribed to a doctrine called docetism, which stated that Jesus was not really human. He just seemed human. This belief came about for two primary well-intentioned reasons. First, Gnostics believed that the flesh and material world were imperfect, and therefore a perfect God could not be human. And then the second thing is that they could not grasp, they could not allow themselves to believe that an all-powerful God could suffer. So for them, if Jesus was God, then he couldn't possibly be human. But as we look at the Christmas text, especially the one that we just read this morning, we see that the Bible teaches us that Jesus really was born. We have the name of his mother. We have the the location of his birth. We even have the time in which it occurred. Scripture is abundantly clear on this issue that Jesus is human. Therefore, early churches Uh, leaders got together and they convened this council in Nicaea in the year 325, and they solidified for the church the Nicene Creed, which states in the first half, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And just like that, After this creed was adopted, Gnosticism and Docetism were declared heretical. 
That means that they were declared as false teachings. And this is important, as we will see, uh, because of what St. Augustine says in this quote, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. We gather for Advent simultaneously remembering the first coming of Christ and also waiting for his second coming. And we reflect in awe on the reality that God himself took on human form and lived among his creation. Open up a Bible or an app to the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at two separate passages in Hebrews that are very closely related. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1002. As you open up God's word, let us pray together. Lord, would you speak to us like only you can speak to us? Lord, would you tune our hearts to hear all that you have for us? Would you tune our ears to hear you ever so clearly? God, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Jesus, be glorified and magnified in this place. Amen. First, I want to look briefly at uh, Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18, in order to set up the passage that we'll explore in more detail. So this is what the author of Hebrew writes in chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. These verses clearly demonstrate why the Gnostics got it wrong. Not only does it say that Jesus was made like us humans in every respect, it also says that Jesus, in fact, suffered. So yes, Jesus is truly human. And yes, Jesus experienced the world fully as a human man. He experienced the pleasure and the pain of life as we know it. And this is extremely important. As the author of Hebrew puts it, that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. He had to do it. Let us turn now the page to Hebrews 4. We'll study verses 14 through 16 together. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is essential that we recognize that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was also fully human. There's a word for this that theologians use. It's the hypostatic union of Christ. This is where his two natures come together. And as Christians, we are drawn to the startling reality that our Savior was born as a little baby boy in a little town of Bethlehem, as prophesied in Micah 5.2. And in light of this essential truth, this morning we are going to focus on the humanity of Jesus, and what that means for us as his followers. In verse 14, we have seemingly this celestial image of Jesus. It says that he's passing through the heavens. This seems more closely associated with his 
divine status than his human one. But passing through the heavens is actually a reference to Jesus' ascension. And if we look back at the ascension, Jesus ascended after he was resurrected in bodily form. That is, the resurrected Christ in bodily form ascended into heaven and now sits on the right hand of God the Father as our great high priest. But Jesus is not just any high priest. He's the perfect embodiment of how a priest should function. You see, God had commissioned the role of the high priest long before Jesus was even born. The priest would enter the most sacred part of the temple once a year on behalf of the Jewish people. He would make an atoning sacrifice for their sins. And year after year, he would do this. And it was the most important thing that the high priest would do and still does. This was a very sacred event that it required the high priest to live in a certain way. He was to be holy and to be clean. He was to be expected to avoid anything that would jeopardize that status. He was set apart from his people. He avoided people at times that might contaminate his holiness. But Jesus, who is our great high priest, did no such thing. Look at verse 15 and consider the entirety of Jesus' life. Jesus enters in to the messiness of the world, while the Jewish priest stands far off and steers clear of it. God himself took on human form, and his holiness was main, remained intact while he was living with his creation. Jesus was intimately with his people. He ate with them. He drank with them. He had fellowship with humanity. I cannot stress for you enough how radical this is. Remember that this, is this, this Jesus is the same God who is frighteningly holy. Jesus is the same God who created all things and is sovereign over all things. And the idea that he would be born as a real human is utterly beneath him in every single way. Because if he could feel, then, oh, sorry, I skipped ahead. And the idea that he was born was utterly beneath him in every way. Because Stoic philosophers uh, during this time, they had the primary attribute of God as a God who couldn't feel because they worried if God could feel, then he could be changed or manipulated or controlled by others. But Jesus is able to be Lord of all, and at the same time, he's able to commiserate with us. The assertion that God is not only a father, but has such sympathy that he enters the suffering of the world was and is absolutely staggering. Jesus is not a high priest who lives disconnected from the plight of the world. Jesus came, and for that reason, he is able to sympathize with his creation. This means that God himself knows how we feel. And this knowledge, is, it's not just intellectual knowledge. It is experiential. That is why Jesus can sympathize and empathize with humanity. He has experienced what we experience, and that matters. Because Jesus, in the human form, had all of the limitations of the human form, mind, body, and soul. He understands intimately our weaknesses. Verse 15 speaks to a specific kind of weakness that plagues all of us. 
we are all susceptible to temptations. But Jesus knows what it's like to face and to fight temptations. He was perfect and sinless, but this does not mean he didn't struggle to overcome. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus is more aware than any one of us regarding the resilience and dependence upon God that it takes to combat the sinful opportunities of this world. Jesus isn't disqualified by his divine nature. He has shared in our troubles, and he sympathizes in our weaknesses. And verses 14 and 15 set up the rationale for what we should do, which is verse 16. We're told to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Because Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize us, then we should and can draw near to God. And we aren't supposed to do this timidly, sheepishly, or even fearfully. But the text tells us that we're supposed to draw close to him confidently, boldly. And this is so different from what the Jews had always known. This is so different from any other belief system practiced around the world. Christianity claims that we can come face to face with the living, holy, and righteous God. We are told that we have direct access to the throne of God through, the, through our great high priest. Whatever we are struggling with, whatever sin has us ensnared, whatever addiction is wreaking havoc on our lives, whatever we could possibly need, we can and should draw near to the one true God. And verse 16 is actually emphasizing that it's Jesus' human nature that should lead us to the throne boldly. It's Jesus' humanity that draws us in. And this shouldn't really shock us, because if you were wanting to confess a sin to someone, would you choose the, the person who's pious and holier than thou? Or would you choose the person that is vulnerable and transparent and humble? I get the most positive feedback from a sermon in which I highlight one of my many, many struggles in life, right? It makes me more approachable because otherwise you think I'm perfect. <laughs> I'm looking at them and they're like on their phone over there or whatever. Yeah, I'm perfect, right? Yeah, he said yes. It makes me more approachable. To, I have many of the same weaknesses that you all have. I can sympathize with people who go through depression and anxiety 
because I've struggled with depression and anxiety for 20 years. I can sympathize with parents who are struggling to raise their children because I'm a dad and I've been working with students for 15 years. On the other hand, I can't truly sympathize with someone who has only known poverty their entire life. I can reach out to them, I can minister to them, I can love them as best as I can, but the reality is I can't possibly know what they have endured. Also, I cannot sympathize with the pain of being a 49ers fan because I've never been a 49ers fan. Seriously, do you see why this is so profound? We can draw close to Jesus because he is just like us in every way, except for the good news that he is nothing like us at all. I don't know how it works, but it works, and that's our confession, that he is like us in every way, and yet he is perfect. He is so unlike us. He is so holy. He is God. And this is why we can receive mercy and find grace, because he was able to overcome the temptations that every other human has fallen prey to. As our great high priest, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God And this is a big deal. Jesus sat down, which no other priest would dare to do in the presence of God because Jesus' work is finished and he could sit down. This is why we celebrate this time of year because God did not and does not stand far off. He took on human flesh and he suffered on our behalf But I want you to hear this because Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. He knew firsthand what it was like to be be fully human. He knew what it was like to lose a friend, to be betrayed, to be lonely. Therefore, we can completely trust him. And I want to give you two ways in which you can demonstrate and grow in your trust in God over this Advent season and beyond. First thing that I commend to you is what the text tells us to do. Draw near to God. And the second thing is draw near to others. If you receive our weekly email and you actually read it all the way through, then you should have gotten this song stuck in your head. If you want to sing with me, you can at some point. Last Christmas I gave you my heart. The very next day you gave it away. This year... To save me from tears, I'll give it to someone special, special. I knew you'd get that. We should take this seriously. We should take this seriously. We should give our lives, our affections, our hearts, our devotions to the only one who has demonstrated throughout time that he is worthy. When we think exactly about what Jesus did for us, it's, it's incomprehensible. Every Christmas time, we are reminded of this startling reality that God would take on human flesh, and we're at a loss for words sometimes. But if you have ever received the gospel of grace in your life, you realize that you also need to be reminded of it often. And when I think about the gospel, what often happens is when someone's sharing the gospel is we focus on Jesus's death and resurrection. 
And Jesus did, in fact, die on our behalf as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead so that we might share in eternal life with him. But Jesus also lived for us. His life on earth has proven to us that he is for us. He left his heavenly dwelling place and took up residence with us who, to put it bluntly, we are the scum of the earth. In comparison to a perfect and holy God, that is what we are. And because of him, he didn't just leave us like that. Because he took on our form, he calls us good. He calls us valuable, and he tells us that our lives have purpose, not only in this life, but in the life to come. So I'll say it again. Draw near to him. Approach his throne of grace and mercy with confidence because he cares for you. When you need something, when your sin and sadness are too much to bear, draw near to him. We can only draw near to him because he first drew near to us. So then we have our model. Jesus is our model. Each year during this season, we are reminded of Jesus' incarnation. God himself taking on human form, and rather than steering clear of the mess in order to keep himself clean, he entered the mess in order to clean it up. Are you entering the messiness, or are you steering clear? To enter the mess and draw near to others is a lifelong practice in trusting God. John 1.14 says that the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Many of you have probably heard or read uh, Eugene Peterson's translation of this in the message translation. The word became flesh and blood and moved in to the neighborhood. This is what we mean by the incarnation. Jesus came and lived among his people and brought to them the kingdom of God. He moved in. He took up residence. He lived amongst his people. Likewise, we are to draw near to others as incarnational witnesses. We do it for others because he did it for us. And there are obvious examples of people in ministries that do this exceptionally well. Perhaps one of the best examples in our lifetime of an incarnational witness is Mother Teresa, who would leave behind the relative comfort of her convent and decide to live amongst the poorest people on the streets of Calcutta. And then there are organizations like Mercy Ships, which was highlighted in our mission spotlight this morning. This is another beautiful example of entering into the messiness of life. These men and women literally set sail towards a significantly broken situation in order to bring the hope and healing of Christ. But recently, I've been drawn to the story of a ministry friend that I had when I was in Florida. His name is Nate. And he moved to California about the same time as Lolly and I did three years ago. He, his wife, and his two daughters felt a call to live in Long Beach and to minister there. And they don't live in one of those up-and-coming sections of Long Beach. Their neighborhood is one of the most densely populated and diverse neighborhoods. 30 to 40% of the people there live below the poverty line. It was the center for the gang warfare that was happening in the 80s and 90s. And still to this day, there's just tons of homelessness and addiction and crime. And even in our booming economy, where this neighborhood only has an unemployment rate of 5%, the household income average is below $30,000 a year. 
the zip code has been defined as a church planting black hole because very few people are willing to go there. And if they do go, they don't stay. Nate told me this week that he moved into the neighborhood because in East Side Long Beach, trust must be built over the long haul. If you're actually trying to reach the people there, then you have to be with them. You cannot just drive in once a week and expect them not to notice. So he and his very young family left their three-bedroom, two-bath house and their $800 a month mortgage. None of us know what that's like. In order to rent a one-bedroom and one-bathroom in Long Beach for $1,600 a month. Him and his two daughters and wife. And if that isn't drastic enough, since moving out there, his place has been broken into and there have been three murders within blocks of where they live. Nate and his family literally moved in to the neighborhood to be the hands and feet of Christ. They're being incarnational witnesses by entering in to the messiness and drawing near to others. But don't worry. God has called that family to that place. He might not be calling you into that type of situation. But the question remains, where is he calling you? Where is he asking you to live like Jesus? How can you enter into someone's story regardless of how messy it is? I'm reminded recently of a woman whose husband just decided this year that he no longer wanted to be married to her. And I watched as countless people just ministered to her and her family. They went into the messiness and the brokenness of that situation, and it wasn't over the top, but it was profound because they functioned as people who would be there for her as she cried. They would mentor and give rides to her kids. And I know firsthand that they made anonymous donations so that their kids could go to camps that we all enjoy. That's just an example of how we could be doing this sort of thing on a week-in and week-out basis. Jesus Christ came as the hope of the world, and he commissioned us to bring hope to others on his behalf. Please use this season to enter the messiness of life. I know we celebrate the joy of this time, and it is joyful, but don't steer clear of the messiness of life. Bring the hope of Christ. Do not stand far off. Draw near to God and draw near to others. God has placed you in your neighborhood. He's placed you in your school, in your workplace. He's placed you on this peninsula in order to be an incarnational witness. So whatever you need to do in order to accomplish your mission, whatever you need, Scripture tells us to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful, as Pastor Tim put it last week, that you came on a rescue mission, that you didn't stand far off, but you entered into our messiness. You came to save us, and not only to save us, but to know us intimately, God. We are so thankful that you are a great high priest, that you are petitioning the Father on our behalf right now, and that we can approach our holy 
God with confidence and boldness asking for whatever we need. Jesus, we thank you for this time of year where we get to reflect on what you've done for us. May we be humbled by it. May we know you as the God who is for us. And may we be equipped to be your people who are for your people. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.